Poetry on Air with Sheboygan Poet Laureate Lisa Vijos. Lisa Vijos, and you're listening to Poetry on Air, a program of Mead Public Library in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And my guest today is my friend, Sylvia Cavanaugh. Sylvia is a poet from Cedar Grove, and she's also a teacher of African and Asian cultural studies at North High School here in Sheboygan. Sylvia has three chapbooks of her poems, and she's a contributing editor to Verse Virtual and Poetry Hall. Also, Sylvia and her students are regular participants in the Sheboygan chapter of 100,000 Poets for Change, which is something that's very near and dear to my heart, and we we do that together every year in September. And uh, just today, welcome, Sylvia. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to join you here today and sharing some poetry. Yeah. So what did you bring with you today? Um, I have The Wind Hover. Uh, by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Let's hear it. All right. The Wind Hover, To Christ Our Lord. I caught this morning's morning minion king, dom of daylight dauphin, dapple dawn-drawn falcon in his riding, of the rolling level underneath him steady air and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding, rebuffed the big wind, my heart in hiding, stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow down sillion shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Holy moly. That's a mouthful of a poem, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly that's is. That's <laughs> got some, some words in it. And and the poet is Gerard Manley Hopkins, right? And, yes. Um, I, I always have appreciated the sound of his poetry, the sounds. And tell us the... I think there's a backstory here to how this poem first came into your life. Yes, uh, my mother used to recite it. That's uh, so, amazing. Yeah, when I was a child, she was going to college and, you know, taking po- English classes, and, and she latched onto this poem and, and memorized it, and she would sort of stalk me around the house reciting this poem and very dramatically. And um, I so right away, you know, from a young age, I was very captivated by the sound and also the images, too, the very, you know, striking images. Yeah, well, there's a lot of movement. And as I was when I read the poem on the page, it was one thing. But hearing you read it out loud really made the the movement come alive for me, listening to you read it. Um, I mean, she's 
there's a bird, right? A bird. Is yes, it is about a bird. Yeah, a, a and, falcon. And <laughs> uh, yeah, flying through the air, and um, and his sort of like internal rhyme mm-hmm. was was very new at the time. You know, yeah. you know, nobody else was really doing that. He sort of invented it, and it was considered, you know, a, a bit radical at the time. Right. Uh, to not have the rhyme at the end of the line. Right. But, yeah. That's. I think it's very cool, and and I think that. Sound is a huge part of poetry, and and we'll we'll keep talking about that as our time moves on. But I I was going to share a poem by him as well by by Hopkins because I have a favorite poem of his, and uh, I thought I would throw this into the mix. It's called Spring and Fall to a Young Child. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for? Can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder. By and by, nor spare a sigh, though worlds of wanwood leaf meal lie, and yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter, child, the name, sorrow's springs are the same. Nor mouth had, no nor mind expressed what heart of what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. Oh, yes. I've always loved that one, too. Yeah. Golden Grove on Leaving. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, yes. and, and the first time I read his poetry, I'm like, I'm not sure if, what I, if I know what he's saying. And then I read it again, and then it starts kind of, you start making connections between the words and and the leaves unleaving and, and you know, moving and going and yes. time passing and I mean it's just he's amazing yes he is yes (laughs) well Gerard Manley Hopkins we thank you we thank you um let's go to your second poem what's the next one that you brought Um, the next one I have is uh, by Louise Erdrich um who you may be more familiar with as a novelist yeah Uh, but she's also written poetry and uh, she wrote a series on uh the sacraments and I'm going to share a poem that she wrote called communion okay communion It is spring. The tiny frogs pull their strange new bodies out of the suck holes, the sediment of rust, and float upward, each in a silver bubble that breaks on the water's surface to one clear, unceasing note of need. Sometimes when I hear them, I leave our bed and stumble among the white shafts of weeds to the edge of the pond. I sink to the throat and witness the ravenous trill of the body transformed at last and then consumed in a rush of music. Sing to me, sing to me. I have never been so cold rising out of sleep. Wow. Another very strong imagery there, right? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, what what drew you to this poem? Um, well, uh, Louise Erdrich uses Catholic imagery a lot, mm-hmm. and even in her novels, it, it comes up too. And I like the way she's linking um, Catholicism and the idea of communion to nature, yeah, and a transformation that occurs in nature. Um, and I also like the way the poem um, also references, you know, the, the comfortable, civilized. Life. She leaves the marital bed in the yeah. night to go out to have this encounter with nature. 
uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the frogs, too, are, are, are floating upward from suck holes and a sediment of rust, which almost sounds industrial, but she applies that to nature. Yeah. Um, so I like the way she's working with images that are both sort of civilized and natural. Interesting. Yeah. Now, did you did you grow up Catholic? Yes. Okay. So and does that have any bearing on the connections to these for you? A well, bit, I or? think may, perhaps it makes it all the more interesting yeah. um, that, that the idea of communion mm-hmm. um, would would be expressed in this way. Yeah, that's wonderful. What else did you bring for us? Okay, I have The Mother of God by William Butler Yeats. Uh, so he's a, a, a well-known Irish poet, and I always found this, this poem to be very intriguing. The Mother of God. The threefold terror of love, a fallen flare, through the hollow of an ear, wings beating about the room, the terror of all terrors that I bore, the heavens in my womb. Had I not found content among the shows every common woman knows, chimney corner, garden walk, or rocky cistern where we tread the clothes and gather all the talk, What is this flesh I purchased with my pains, this fallen star my milk sustains, this love that makes my heart's blood stop or strikes a sudden chill into my bones and bids my hair stand up? Another one. (laughs) I love how all three of your poems had, have some, you, you, did you on purpose select things that had a kind of uh, connection to religion? Uh, Yes, I thought that that would be sort of an interesting unifying theme theme. and and the way three different poets work with it. Yeah, so we should look at this a little bit. So one thing about this poem, I I love poems that go into the mind of a character, you know, who you might not have thought to go into the mind of, such as, you know, Mary, mother of God. Right. I mean, that's kind of right. She's always sort of a sort of a pleasant but flat character, and here you know, she it's is. more of like the plot that's the point, and yeah. not her. And so I thought that yeah, it was sort of ingenious of Yeats, yeah, and and the idea that it wouldn't be necessarily entirely pleasant for Mary, oh yeah, to have this experience. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, what are some of the? Are there any particular lines in the poem that you just found especially kind of lovely and? that grab you? Uh, Well, I like the way, well, now we know, of course, that calcium is born in stars. And so I I like this fallen star my milk sustains, Yeah, you know, and the connection there. And then he follows it up a couple lines later with the sudden chill in my bones, Mm. you know, so I like the way those ideas sort of link together. And, you know, when I, again, when I read it on the page, um, the line, the very last line, and bids my hair stand up, I thought something about it to me was jarring. Yes. Like that, but I mean, I guess it's meant to be jarring. When you read it, uh, it, it, it was, it was striking, but it still, it made, like, if to me, the, the language was a little bit, um, like too modern for Mary to be saying my, it made my hair stand up, but Maybe maybe that's been a thing forever. Hair standing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But when you read it, it 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 fit together I, for me. Listening to your voice say it, 
Oh, oh, so, good, good. Yeah, it, it, that sort of resolved it for me. Did well, that line stick out to you? Oh, yes. I think it's sort of a very striking. There's a, there is a little a bit of a shock quality. Speaking, yeah. talking of hair standing up. Yeah. Um, a little shock quality to the ending, and I think that that's also really brilliant poetically. You know, it's an ending that really it doesn't. The poem just doesn't fade away. That is true. And endings can be so difficult. Yes, we've had this discussion. Um, oftentimes, it, I'll you know the the best poems leave you like leaping off into you know a surprise or something you didn't expect. Right. The tendency, you know, as as I work and I think we all kind of grapple with this is not to wrap things up too neatly. Yeah, exactly. Because it ruins it for the reader. It's like, huh, what? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I think this is an example of a really good ending. Yeah, I think so. So when you've, in your development as a poet, and in the second half of, of today's um, show, we're going to delve into your own poetry. Um, have you did you study a lot of poetry before you started writing poetry? How did you come to write poetry? Well, I have uh, written poetry on and off, you know, all my life, I guess, and, and have read poetry all mm -hmm. my life. But, um, you know, I, I, I would say that you were one of the, the great influences <laughs> to, you know, get me to start oh, good. Uh, writing poetry because uh, – I began by, you know, bringing the breakdancers to 100,000 Poets That's for Change, right. and then I got to know you, and oh, uh, I heard, you know, the, these I'm poetry blushing. readings. This and, is right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you were very encouraging. Oh, and, good. And you encouraged me That's to start a poetry club at North, and and okay. uh, yeah. and then one thing led to another. Oh, Sylvia. Awesome. Well, I mean, you've... You're an amazing poet, so you were. I think you were a poet all along, and it was just like reminding you to, you know, do that. Yes, and yeah. you know, you had your mother walking yes, my through the mother, house. I mean, I was raised with it. This is Lisa Vijos, and we're back with Poetry on Air, and our guest today is Sylvia Cavanaugh, and we've been talking about, oh, what, what, makes, what makes poetry move us, and, and, and how do we come to it, and what do we find in it, and I think we're going to um, have a good uh, next session here as we delve into some of Sylvia's own poetry. Um, what did you bring, Sylvia? Uh, I'm going to start with a poem called Northern Light. It's uh, an ode to the red-yellow tulip. Yellow luster luminous below a rapid smear of red, an artist fevered rush, that such a fleshy flower, solid as my grandmother's legs, a flower from a latitude of Protestant attitude and capital enlightenment could heighten our perception of light, like a Vermeer, that we might witness a thing we cannot see with eyes alone, like vision falling fast through a lens magnified and clarified, risen from six inches under winter's frozen tundra, to be seen is to be. Nice. Did this poem... Was this poem inspired by a painting of a tulip? Uh, it was uh, inspired by a photograph. So this is ekphrastic. Okay. 
Uh, and it was in, in Sheboygan, Lisa, you may remember a few years ago, we had an exchange between artists and poets. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and so, you know, I was part of that exchange, and I was given this photograph that was a close-up of a red-yellow tulip. Oh, wonderful. Well, yeah, ekphrastic. That's... Um... That's when uh, one art form inspires a response in another art form. Yes. So if right. you've got, like you said, the photograph, and then you wrote a poem. And, and in that show, right, the, the artists also received poems and made images from the poetry. So that was a real nice exchange, right, between, yeah. oh, the, yes. between yes. the arts. What I also saw or heard in this poem, and it was so wonderful that you had brought Hopkins and and Erdrick, I mean, just the emphasis on sound. Like to me in, in your poem, there were so many wonderful moments, just right from the first line, luster, yellow luster luminous, uh, fevered rush, fleshy flower, latitude and attitude. I mean, there was all this great sound, and I just, it really grabbed me. And so when you were write, when you're writing, do you read out loud to yourself as you're writing ever? Uh, yes, yes, I do. And um, it is kind of funny. I'm sure you found this, Lisa, too, sometimes where sound will just come to you in the moment. Yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't even feel entirely conscious at times. That's true. And sometimes I notice that if I'm trying to figure out how to either finish a line or get to the next line, I I try to listen. Like, what would sound what would sound good now? Like, I don't want to just say the thing that's kind of mundane and like at the top of my head. I want to say something that sounds more exciting. And it takes a little, you have to open yourself up and stop using kind of preconceived notions, I think. Yeah, right. And, and that's really, I feel like it's uh, the craft of poetry is you want the image and the sound. Yeah. Like the word has to have both. Yeah, and it's uh, true. It's hard, it's hard to do. Yes. It doesn't just yes, roll it's, off the it's, brain. It's very <laughs> tricky. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's um, thank you for that poem. You, I know what what you brought three poems. What's the second poem? Uh, the second one is called "The Tao of Unrequited Love." All right, let's hear this one. Unrequited love is an indigo bunting. Those black birds of spring, each with a scrap of sky fastened to its wings. At Lincoln Junior High, I followed a boy around the outdoor track, smelled roses when crabapple petals stormed the third leg of the mile. I was lost and adrift in wild bliss until the thunk of his foot catching a high hurdle tasted like sawdust in my mouth. When Ty was placed in my group in English class, I synced my stride with his and pretended to be Walter Mitty's wife for laughs. Ty knew I was a spaz in love, even before he dared me to slice his finger in the jaws of the art room paper cutter. My blade mouth whistled the ride of the Valkyries, splattering red jeweled drops all over Love City. But Ty said, it's okay, be cool, as he held his hand mirror to my face, and I saw geraniums wilt and shrink blood dark in fall. I'll pick up some charcoal and draw myself portrait for the next 40 years. Toothed ice caves, crisp violets, and razor blue wings. Even Shiva at the piano. To my love I say, je ne suis rien sans toi. By which I mean, the nothing of your love made me something. Became a habit, never stale. An absent love inspires blizzards of poems. And the blue sky to adorn spring's black-winged birds. 
Wow. <laughs> so when I read this, I wondered, did this really happen to Sylvia? Did you really have this experience with someone named Ty? Or did you make this up? <laughs> no, it is based on fact. Um, but, you know, I sort of played with it poetically. I wanted mm-hmm. to capture the the sort of like... Uh, the joyful exuberance and all, the manicness of when you're falling in love. You yes, know. in high school. In high school, especially, especially when, when you're young and it's new. And yeah. uh, so I, I played with it poetically to try mm-hmm. to get that feeling. Yeah. Well, that's a thing about another thing about poetry that I've learned over the years from, from other poets is that you can speak in the first person. I mean, and you it's based on something that actually happened, but you've embellished. But you can even have a poem be in the first person, and it's completely fictional. Oh, yes. Which, at first, I n- didn't even think that was possible, but <laughs> it's very interesting. And, um, and and so this notion of kind of uh, enhanced memoir, in a way, you know, that, that you, take, you take some liberties and you, and you explore into what, what were the feelings, you know, what, how, can, how can those things be described metaphorically? Yes. And I think... I love this poem. At, at the end, what I can you read the last um, the last sentence from an absent, if you would. An absent love inspires blizzards of poems and the blue sky to adorn spring's black winged birds. So for me, I was that seemed like as though you were saying unrequited love might not be the worst thing ever because it kind of inspires you to. Do things. Be yes. creative. Yes. Uh, find the hidden gem in even in the in the feelings of, you know, loss or sadness or rejection. Yes. But to find the sort of what things adorn the world, even though the love thing did not work out. Now it's hard to know that when you're young, though. I think it's like you don't really see that till later, maybe. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yes, I think so. And um, that also um, goes back to the title, which yeah. is the Tao of Unrequited Love. Oh. So in Taoism, there's this belief that emptiness is generative, right? Okay. So so I decided to play with that, that idea. And you're right, the young do not understand yeah. that sometimes loss can can be a source of, of great creativity, I mean, down yeah. through the ages. Right. Oh, my goodness. I love it even more. <laughs> it's a great poem. Um, and it, it did scare me, though. Did you, I mean, I hate to even ask this question. Did you actually cut this person's? Yes, I did. <laughs> he really did dare me to cut off his finger. And what happened? Well, he didn't think I'd do it. Yeah. Um, I thought he'd move his finger out of the way. Did you freak out when it happened? Y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and he he was you know remarkably cool and understanding. I but mean, he was, was he just cut. It was it was just like, cut. It wasn't literally severed. Literally severed. Okay, right. good. No, it's an amazing uh, memory from you know that you've brought, you've you've made it three dimensional, and I love the the geraniums the the like the which I took as like the blood. Yes. Like blooming on his hand. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was very visceral. It's a very visceral poem. Um, no, I mean, truly, because you've got the sawdust in the mouth, and it just, it's a wonderful poem. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, thank you for bringing it. Um, we're, we're doing well. Let, let's talk about, let's bring your third poem up to the, to the plate here. Um, share the next one. Uh, this is uh, called Nocrity. 
And uh, this it relates to the myth of Icarus. Mm-hmm. And um, Icarus was uh, the boy who flew too close to the sun with wings made of wax. Right. And so he fell into the sea and drowned. Yes. Um, the, the wings were crafted by his father, Daedalus. That's right. And together they were flying away from Crete yeah. uh, on these wings. And the but, father had said, don't go too close to the, the sun. And the father warned him. But he didn't but listen. But he couldn't. Yeah, he did the it. Way um, young people don't. No. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's a, I think it's a, it's a great myth. It's, it's, you can extract a lot out of this myth, which I yeah. have attempted to do over the years. Yes. Uh, but Nocrity, you don't usually hear about, but she's the mother of Icarus. This is a wonderful right? and and thing. so they Let's... they somehow leave her behind on Crete with the Minotaur, you know, <laughs> it's like, like bye, mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I thought it would be interesting to give a, a voice to to Nocrity. Oh, let's hear it. All right, Nocrity, ever the mother of Icarus, my name means power of the sea, but with no edge of my own, my boundaries are defined by other bodies. I've conformed to the contours of my children, their dreams and sadnesses. I've soothed and cooled the anger, sometimes flaring hot between disparate particles. I'm the participle that describes nouns, a verb downgraded to an adjective. I'm the swelling tide. My thoughts are salt, a brine brimful on the brink of saturation. My children take chances. I want to hold them afloat. Mm. Yeah, imagine being the mother of the boy who fell into the sea because the father made the wax wings. I right. mean, it's just and, kind and, of... And, and then to find out her mother, actually, her name actually means power of the sea. You know, when I yeah. discovered that, I thought, oh my gosh, I'll like... Put that in a poem. perfect, right? <laughs> that is a poem asking to be written. Yes. Well, and did were there other siblings? Did she have other children? Um, not that I know of, okay. but this is where I also took uh, the story of Nocrity and also made it my own story. Yeah, right. Now, it, you mentioned that the, her story has been with you for a long time, and other um, mythological characters as well. Like the book, or, or Icarus in particular, your book, Anthropology of Addiction, is all sort of focused around various um, things that relate to the story, the labyrinth, um, right? Do you, can you tell us about this book? Yeah, so I was interested in in looking at the issue of addiction and using the Icarus myth to do so. Mm-hmm. And the myth is so incredibly rich. You know, you can you can speculate as to the reasons why Daedalus decides they have to leave Crete um, and... I mean, you can assign multiple levels of meaning to that. Mm-hmm. Why Nocrity is left behind? Why Icarus falls too clo- flies too close to the sun? Mm-hmm. And I also discovered that you know, in thinking about it more and more, I could think about the voice of the sea. You know, uh, what did the sea have to say in all of this? And what about gravity? I think I gave gravity a voice too. Could you read one more poem from the book? I can share this one. Daedalus surfs Refugio Beach. That sounds great. Okay. Yeah. Daedalus surfs Refugio Beach. I saw him there, gray hair and spine soldered stiff, but with nimble ankles to work the board. This is how he flies now, skimming the rising breast of the sea. He glides the high tide, rides the moon goddess in the full sun of morning, the sea permitting the light to penetrate only the high vaulting arc of the wave, blue giving way to beryl. 
But mostly the sea casts off the sun in a scattering of sharp sparkle like a shriek of triumphant laughter. And when the wave he rides is almost spent, and the board careens one way and he the other, sideways or backwards, he washes up in the sizzle of white foam, not quite water, not quite air. He thinks he wants new free love, given and taken in patchouli moonglow rooms, thinks he knew his way around the maze. Now he kisses the sand and salt, refugio, oh, refugio. Mm, I love it. That's great. And there's a lot of movement in that one. You know, it kind of brings us back around to where we were at the beginning with with Windover and just the oh. movement of you can it's you can feel this guy surfing the waves. And I, I love that. So your poems are very I've noticed today how visceral they are. So thank you for that. I mean, I've heard your poetry for a long time, but for some reason today, it's really striking me just the feeling of, of you know, visceralness of the of the body and the sensation. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you, Lisa. Yeah. Well, this has been Poetry on Air and uh, a program of Mead Public Library in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And um, if you want to reach out to me to uh, give me your feedback on the show or suggest some upcoming themes or ideas, reach out to me at poetlaureatesheboygan at gmail.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Poetry on Air, hosted by Sheboygan's Poet Laureate, Lisa Vihos. Questions or comments can be directed to Lisa at poetlaureatesheboygan at gmail.com. Poetry on Air is produced in the studios at Reed Public Library in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. More information on the web at meadpl.org.